Good to have everybody here. Realize you could be elsewhere or home or wherever. And glad you chose to come. You might turn to First Kings uh, 17, 18, 19, that neighborhood. Uh, we'll be at 19 first, first Kings 19. <clears throat> Does everybody have a handout? I hope. Okay. If you don't, we've got some. Could get you one real quick. So this is the sixth class in this little series, How Ordinary People Can Learn to Be Brave. And uh, I'm using the word courage and bravery and faith kind of interchangeably. Um, one of the things, you know, I think we've lots of us have learned just about life in general is that uh, sometimes life is pretty smooth. Um, and then sometimes it is rocky and, and just just downright tough. And then uh, at other times, you know, it's just uh, you just kind of wonder if you can take the next step. And so I'm making that assumption. Um, you know what? I, I guess, you know, after just years of having conversation with a lot of people and include including my own life. Um, people. People really are going through a lot. Yeah, I mean, people who are very young and people who are old, like anybody but yourself. You're not, surely you're not an old person. But people really do go through a lot. I was really aggravated at this guy. Y'all ever get aggravated at somebody? I was just so aggravated with this guy. I thought he was self-centered and I thought he was just acting in a way that was making life pretty difficult for a number of people. So I was talking one day with this person, and uh, this person had a, a worked with a lot of church leaders. And uh, I was telling this person, I said, I am really having a tough time with this guy. He is selfish. He is rude. He makes life difficult for me and a number of other people. And I began to tell her a couple of stories of, of what was going on. This person has a background of a therapist. And uh, at one point, she says, uh, she says, Jim, his behavior that you're describing, it's pretty bad. Could you describe to me the place of compassion in you as you think about this? <laughs> I said, for your information, there is no compassion. <laughs> and then I started thinking about this guy, and I've known this guy for years and kind of know, know a little bit about his background, the way he grew up. And, you know, that doesn't change all of his rude, boorish behavior. But it did elicit just a little bit of compassion in me when I thought about that. In 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, 19, there's this wonderful story of Elijah. And Elijah is going up against uh, uh, people like Ahab and Jezebel. I don't think any of your children are named Jezebel. They are, excuse me, but uh, most of us avoid certain names. Um, but he's going up against these characters like Ahab and, and Jezebel. 
and they're brutal. And it doesn't look good in chapter 19. In fact, he's just about had all he can take. So this is a class about what do you do when you need to take the next right step? And every week we're looking at a different text and I'm trying to emphasize kind of a different piece of this. And tonight, what I'd like to look at is, so what, what, what do you do when you just want to give up? Now that may apply to all the other people except you, or, but I, I, I have certainly felt that way before. What I'd like to begin doing is, by, is just read uh, chapter 19. Uh, not all of it, but a portion of it. Um, and then we'll talk about the preceding chapters a little bit, okay? Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. All those prophets of Baal, all the, all the wicked prophets. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Take a good look at your watch. Because when it hits Thursday, you're going to look like one of them. And Elijah was afraid. And he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush. You know what a broom bush is? I don't. Sat down under it and prayed that he might die. Prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. I have had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head were some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and then he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord, and that is a phrase used over and over and over from chapter 17 through 19. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I guess you all know some people stay at home on Wednesday night. <laughs> Get that. I guess you all know that we got some folks in this church that are Sunday morning onlys. Not like you, not like me. I am zealous. I'm involved. I, I, I'm, I'm a part of things. Elijah says, when it comes to zeal, I have it. And the Israelites, let's talk about them for a minute. They've rejected your covenant. Torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. 
And the Lord said, get out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and the wind there. Excuse me. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram, and also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from uh, Abel, Meholah, I think, to succeed you as prophet. And Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. And yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those knees who have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Whew. So look at your sheet for a moment. And we're going to work with this some tonight. An unexpected threat and an unexpected response. An unexpected uh, threat and an unexpected response. Charlotte and I were living in a little town in Middle Tennessee. It was the very, very first church where I ever preached. And we met in a storefront like it used to be a convenience store. Um, if you wanted to be baptized in our church, you had to go into the what, what used to be the meat locker, change clothes and then come out. And there was a little portable baptistry there. Well, I, I was, you know, I, I just I, I had had a pretty drastic change in lifestyle, graduated from University of North Texas and was sort of another person then and made this change in my lifestyle. And all of a sudden, after a few years and went to this small Bible college in those days. And, and, and anyway, I'm preaching there in Middle Tennessee. I was so naive. You could have helped me a lot. I thought everybody wanted to do right. I thought, uh, I guess I wasn't listening in class. I thought, I thought if you just told them, tell them, you know, then they'll say, OK, and then we'll all go do it together or something. It, Charlotte and I went over this, this person's house and he was our money guy. He had more money than anybody in the little church. And and uh, he kind of anyway. So he was there and he's a single man and had kind of running around with this woman. And he was dating her and it was kind of looking bizarre. And we Charlotte and I are now staying at his house on a Sunday afternoon and I'm flipping, you know, you're in, the, in this room and I look over here and here's a video. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, he watches this stuff. Because I just come out of a business meeting with him and and he was saying all these things about God. And here's this skanky video and, you know, all that. Went to a, a, a meeting of of the men 
where, where they were all talking about how upset some were because some people had come to our church that uh, uh, their complexion was not the same as most of us. And they just, a couple said, by George, I hope they're not planning on placing membership and what would that do to us and blah, 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 blah. I was so discouraged. I just thought, you know, I've gone from not living right to now really trying to live right. I have left my job in Dallas and I've gone to the other side of the country and I've gone to this little school. And I go to a church and I'm preaching to this concoction of a sermon. You may think this class is like this, this concoction of a sermon. And here's all this mess. Well, Charlotte went on to school the next morning, Minor Hill School. She taught kindergarten there. And, and I went to Florence, Alabama, to see her daddy. Because her daddy had preached a lot of years. Went into his office, sat down. I said, I won't tell you what's going on in this place. I started telling him all this, and he'd just nod, nod, nod. He said, yeah, it's a mess. And he said, you don't have to be there. But he said, you know, there's just mess everywhere. And that's one reason why what you're doing is so important. Elijah is doing the right thing. I mean, the guy is zealous. He showed up for the pictorial directory and everything, and, and he is zealous. And this guy is on fire. <coughs> and do these people listen to him? What does he say about them? They what? He says it twice. They, uh, they tear down your altars, reject your covenant, put your prophets to death with the sword. And how do we respond to that? What is the problem or what is the use? What is the stinking use? What is the, I mean, why do this? I'm sitting there with, in my office one day there in Waco and this guy comes in. He hadn't been a Christian all that long. He said, my wife's out running around with some guy. I wouldn't be a Christian if it wasn't for her. Here she is having an affair. What am I supposed to do with that? And, you know, I could just hear in his voice and the, what's the use? I mean, if she's the strong one and this is the way she acts. What am I about? Elijah says, I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me, too. If you go back to chapter 17, I'm going to talk just a little bit more than hopefully I'll hush. And I know you want that, too. Uh, go back to 17, uh, where, you know, we've got this announcement of the drought that's later talked about in the book of James and Elijah's prayer. Remember that uh, if you look at the headings, at least in the NIV, Elijah's fed by the ravens. There's that wonderful story of being by the brook. 
Elijah and the widow at Zarephath, chapter 17, verse 7. And there's the story of this boy, her son, his life coming back to him. The Lord, verse 22, heard Elijah's cry. Verse, chapter 18, this story of Obadiah. Y'all are being so patient. The story of Obadiah who hides prophets. And then we come to this big one. One of the favorite stories of little boys and girls in Bible school, Elijah on Mount Carmel. What's that about? What happens there? Showdown. Okay. And it is the false prophets of Baal versus God. Okay. And here's this, you know, they're, they're wanting to... They're wanting something to happen to this sacrifice. These false prophets are. And remember to the to the sacrifice to the Lord God. They pour all these pitchers of water all over it. Oh, my goodness. And then what happens? Big fire. Big fire. Now, see, sometimes when you're in Bible class, Sometimes you are looking at passages where, you know, you kind of want to be gentle and soft and and they're just kind of tender passages. This isn't one of them. This is big. I mean, it's like, boom. And here we go. And this is God displaying his glory. But then there's this bizarre chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And he was afraid and he ran for his life. Now, sometimes I wish I could be just a... Y'all ever just wish you you could just kind of know an apostle? like one of the main ones, like Paul or John. And you think, man, if I could knew one of those guys, I would have faith because they, these guys were serious. Talk about zealous, capital Z. Paul, ugh, my goodness. If I knew one of them or been reading about this Francis Chan church or some other kind of church, I'm thinking, man, if I could be a part of a church like that that was just exploding, boy, I would have a faith. And There's a part of me or part of us maybe that might say, you know, if I could just hear the word of the Lord from his very lips. Oh, my goodness. And Elijah experiences all this kind of thing. But then Jezebel speaks. And he's terrified. Let's stop for a moment. Look at our notes. There's an unexpected threat, and that would be Jezebel's threat and an unexpected response. We're just talking about other people here. If this was if this was uh, well, let's talk about you, I guess, and you and me. We saw how Elijah would have responded. How would you and I have responded to Jezebel? We would have said what? Larry would have said, I'm out of here. Okay. Some of us, you know, I, you know what I hope I would have said? I hope I would say, what do you mean threaten me? Did you know, were you not, did you not see what happened at Mount Carmel? 
Do you not know how the Lord has displayed his glory? And you, the queen, wicked at that, you open your mouth and I'm supposed to jump? Well, he, you know, he did jump. So look, Elijah may have suffered, you know, by the time we get to him in the cave, he may have suffered from fatigue or fear or a sense of resignation or whatever. I don't know. He prayed that he might die and he said, I have had enough. So when, let's start over here. When, when, do, when do we, not we, when do, when do folks, other folks say, I have had enough? When do folks say that? When, when they feel defeated, Faith, when, when I see no option, I'm out of options, I've had enough. How about in, in here? When, when do we say, I, I've had enough? Sometimes, Jay, those things stack, you know? It's kind of like, okay, there's, if it was just the lady over here that was rude to me one Sunday, that's one thing. But when you're rude and you're rude and you're rude and it's just one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. Any one thing may not be all that, you know, bad, but stacked up. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat some worms. <laughs> eat some worms. You never heard that song. You know, I hadn't, Betty. Are you going to break out in song? Okay. Let's sing it, Betty. I, I am so glad you sit right here. That you, you are helpful, and I need, we needed a break. When you've had enough, when you have just had enough, you know, you just get to a place, you go, I can't take anymore. You ever, maybe you've said that before. Some of us have. It's called a tipping point. A tip, Freddie, we got language in here. Tipping point. It's called a tipping point. And where are we tipping? Or where are we pointing? Down. I mean, yeah. This just we we've come to a tipping point, and man, I'm done. I am done. Or as a guy said to me one time about his church, I am out of here. I have had all I can handle, and it wasn't any one thing. Well. So here is, here is Elijah who says, I have had enough and perceives himself to be alone. We're, we're most, let's go back over here. We're most likely to perceive, perceive ourselves alone when? When are we most likely to perceive ourselves as being alone? Yes, when I think, when I think nobody else here gets this. They do not get this. He's sitting in my office and he said, Jim, we have got this special needs child. And I keep trying to tell people we need support. And they look at me with this blank look. And we are out of, we don't know what to do. We want to be here, but we don't know what to do. And they don't know what to do. There's a sense that nobody gets it. What else? When are, when are we liable to say uh, or perceive ourselves to be alone? Yeah, Mike, when we, we, we spend so much time looking at our own problems, uh, you know, a, a, a person says, uh, uh, you, you, you know, a person says, uh, you know, I know people have problems, but I mean, who's been through a divorce? And I'm thinking, well, actually, I can name several dozen people in this church who have been through divorce. But 
um, when it's your deal, aren't you kind of like that too? I, I am. You, you, when it's your deal, it's very easy. Uh, I, I know all y'all have problems, but man, you, not like what I'm dealing with right now or we're dealing with right now. Look at the next number two, God at work. There's this wonderful theme throughout 17, 18, 19 of God's blessings. God's blessings. Where God blesses Elijah with food and drink. What do you think about that? Food and drink. Stove and refrigerator. What do you think about that? You know, there's a part of us sometimes. I want the dramatic. I want, show me the way to Mount Carmel. I will be there. David and I will be right there on the front row, just kind of waiting for this thing to happen. Show me the dramatic. And what does he do? Talks about God in the ordinary. God in soup and cornbread and providing that. It's this interesting. What now? If you're hungry and thirsty, you don't want a video game or something. You want food and drink. Yeah. Yeah. It's just just this interesting in these three chapters from this God who does the dramatic to a God who provides in these ordinary moments, as Jay said, needed moments, but a God who's providing in these ordinary moments. You know, I was thinking as I read this, might be good to remember that, you know, because sometimes when you're praying for somebody to be healed or praying for this situation to be made right, um, we can kind of overlook all the other moments where God is present and working and active while we say, where is God? You know? We're taught to pray for our daily bread. Yeah, yeah. We're told to pray for our daily bread. Look at the next one. God's word. Look, uh, look at 17, if you would. I'm not going to read a, a, a lot of text. Just want you to look at the phrases for a minute. Uh, verse two, the word of the Lord. This is chapter 17. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Verse seven or verse eight. Excuse me. The word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah. Verse uh, 16, for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Verse 24, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God and the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. And then we come to a place where Elijah has listened to Jezebel, not the word of the Lord, but the word of this wicked queen. And we're reminded again in verse chapter 19 and verse nine, then the word of the Lord came to him. It's almost like God is saying, you know, you're listening to the wrong people, but I am still speaking. God's blessings, God's word. And the last one is God's presence. God's presence. Look at uh, verse, we read this a moment ago. There was this great and powerful wind. Chapter 19, verse 11. 
Uh, and that tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. You know, each time you just want to think, okay, this is it. <laughs> earthquake, fire, um, wind. I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is the dramatic God that I worship. And then we're told that, no, it's in this ordinary, this, this whisper. I want to focus for just a moment on number three. What does not help us move forward with courage when we find ourselves saying things like, I am the only one, I am the only one who is not really bowed down to Baal. Okay? I mean, you can go from saying, I'm the only right church, the only right bunch, I'm the only right, we're the only family that's really dedicated to the Lord. We're the only, I'm the only person who is sold out. Um, I, I can do all of that. Look at number one. Sometimes I might say that out of this sense of exaggerated self-importance, maybe. Exaggerated self-importance. I am alone and maybe there is, maybe I see that there is no one like me. I'm alone. There's no one like me. Okay. Um, in, in what in what way could, 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 could an exaggerated sense of self-importance get in the way of living with courage or bravery? An exaggerated sense of self-importance. An exaggerated, that's very good, exaggerated self, sense of self-importance might cause me to conclude what? I did it all. Lady came up to me one time, Gary, and she said, uh, I know you're glad my husband's an elder. I'm not sure what would be done if he wasn't there. Well, her husband's a wonderful man. <laughs> but I think we had a little bit of an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Because there were a lot of other wonderful people who were serving in that role. You know? Uh, you know, a preacher can act like that in a church where there's almost this sense of I've got it down. And if you if you would only listen to me, I, I could act like that in my family. That, you know, where, where I where I communicate that if, if people would just listen to me. But the problem is people don't get it. It's my thinking when I've got this sense of exaggerated self-importance. Well, I don't know about that with Elijah. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But I do know he feels very, very much alone. I want to touch on another one before we move. The other one, if there's, if there's, if there's the other end of that, that sense of being alone, and so uh, I have this exaggerated sense of self, it's exaggerated self-loathing. Exaggerated self-loathing. What could that be like? I bet that's not a very good question, is it? Nobody has it, apparently. <laughs> You're quick. Uh, nobody has it, apparently. An exaggerated sense of self-loathing might, might say, um, I am all alone, and what is the use? I don't matter anyway. I don't matter anyway. 
I don't matter in this church. I don't matter. Uh, I really don't matter to my friends. Um, I, I'm not a very good Christian. Um, you know, and I think there, I think this is a little bit more familiar than we might think, you know. Um, because there are people who in, in these churches, in our church, and who really believe that um, they're just kind of too, there's too much stain there. There's just too much. That there is too much failure. Um, there, there's, there, there, there are things that I'm ashamed of, and if anybody knew, you know, wow. And yet, both of those views of the self are wrong. Exaggerated sense of self or exaggerated self-loathing. And Elijah's view of self is wrong. Lord, I am, I'm by myself. I'm the only one. Now, was that true? Is that true? Go ahead, go ahead and race ahead. Look at uh, verse 18. Am I in the wrong place? In chapter 19, verse 18, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You know, Elijah, there are a lot more people trying to do right than you might think. You are not all alone. Look at the, at the bottom of the page, if you would, under take home. So if we think about what it's like to just move ahead and in previous, one of some of the things I've tried to stress in previous classes is when we need courage, we need faith, when we need bravery, it's, it's typically, you know, smack dab in the middle of life, in the middle of your marriage in the middle of you dealing with that difficult child, in the middle of you dealing with your illness, we're right smack dab in the middle of life, sometimes just simply taking a tiny step of faith forward can be huge. And we do that in the presence of God, don't we? In the power of God. We've talked about that in earlier weeks. Fear is what can swell inside our heads only to immobilize us and defeat us. Swell inside our heads. So if you could think of a little bit of fear and just kind of stick it in your head for a minute, I guess not on your head, but in your head, stick it in your head for a minute. And if it were going to swell up, how could you make fear swell up? Some of us are experienced at this. I mean, it, how, how could we make fear swell up in our heads? Yes, thinking about all the what ifs. What if this could happen and what if that could happen? Yeah, that can really, you know, kind of cause that thing to swell. And so the fear that was this size becomes even larger. Besides that, I'm all alone. I am all alone. The only one really trying to handle this, do the right thing. How, what else causes fear to just swell up in our heads? 
when we forget that God is with us and, and it's just kind of all I'm just I'm just dealing with me inside. OK, fear swells up in my head when I, I live life in my head. Y'all ever lived a whole lot of life in your head and then you started to do the real thing and it was totally different than where you were. I mean, I've done that in the middle of the night. Just who's happens this going to happen. And if it says, I won't say this. And if that happens, that's going to be terrible. And then just so, you know, it just swells up and then you get up and go to work. And it's not even like that. And so if I if I'm if I'm just in my head, if I'm just in my head and I'm in the cave and somebody says, well, has God not worked in your life? Well, maybe I could maybe I could look in the chapter 17 or 18 of of what God's done in my life. And lo and behold, there are a lot of things he's done. But right now I'm afraid. I don't want to give the impression I have this down. I don't live this as well as I speak it. I wrestle with fear at times and I wrestle at times with keeping things in proportion. But what I have learned through stories like this is that, man, I can take a couple of steps forward in faith and courage and bravery by getting out of my head and getting into the presence of God, even when his presence doesn't seem very dramatic. Does that make any sense? So I guess what I'm trying to say, it's an ongoing thing. So you don't have to sit there and think, ain't it awful? I should be just it's, it's ongoing for us. Look at number two. Anxiety is what happens when we fast forward our fears. Do y'all, do y'all uh, listen? Do, do, do you listen to maybe podcasts or recordings of some kind when you when you listen to it faster than wh- the way it was spoken? Do you, do, does anybody do that? There's two of us that do that. Okay. What do you put yours on? One and a half. One and a half. Okay. Those are one and a half ears. These are one and one fourth ears. I'm slowing. So it just means that, that I'm speeding it up. Well, what I can do if I'm not careful, I can fast forward my fear. I can fast forward it so that uh, I'll look up. I can't find one in here, but I look up and I see this spot. I say, oh, my goodness, the entire roof is leaking. Do you know you hear about that roof that fell in that was leaking, killed all those people? Oh, my. You know, the whole church shut down. Now, that's just silly. But I'm telling you, we do that. We fast forward the fear. Well, if that happens, then this. If that happens, then this. Well, we just may as well close it down. Just shut her down because it, you know, what's the use? Well, when you fast forward fear, the only thing that does is causes you to be more and more anxious. More and more anxious. Can y'all do some good anxiety? What do you do when you're anxious? You y'all hand ringers or are you pacers or I can do this. This is one that I do. If Charlotte's not awake or around or whatever, I can just pace with my hands on my on my hips and then I'll usually fold them and go good grief. And then, you know, just I can just feel the anxiety building up in my chest. You know. Anxiety is when I choose to fast forward fear. 
I think we got enough to deal with today without dealing with what? To tomorrow, right? Well, I like that big word, Michael. Say, say it again. Catastrophization. All right. So in other words, you turn everything into a catastrophe. You turn everything into a catastrophe. Yeah. There's people that live with drama like that, I think. Yeah. Look at the third one. Having a plan to take small steps, to take small steps can move us forward and even create momentum. Here's what I mean by that. Um, what gets a lot of us in trouble, and, and I just know this from living, and I know this from talking to a lot of us. What gets us in trouble is we're living in our heads. We're just living in our heads. And we're worrying in our heads, and our fears in our heads, and the anxiety builds up. What is that book? Uh, uh, <clears throat> can't think of it right now. I think it's uh, that old book by Carl Menninger from years ago, who was at the Menninger or founded the Menninger Clinic in, uh, t I think it's Topeka, Kansas, and wrote that book, uh, whatever became a sin or something like that, and basically said, uh, you know, one of the one of the best things we could do if we were worried and fretful is just to help somebody. Well, what I like about that is, and it's so true, one of the best things I can do when I start living in my head is to get out of my head. You say, how do you do that? Well, this is what, I'm just telling you what I do. I might say something like this. You know, I'm going to call these two guys in Central Texas. Both of them are younger guys that are my friends. They're business people. They're young fathers. And I'll call them and I'll make about a five minute call. And if they're not there, that's fine. I'm going to leave a message. And I will say something like this. James, man, I was thinking about you today. I hope you had a good day. I'm so proud of the kind of husband and daddy you are. I'll say a few things like that and hang up. Then I'll call the next one. Now, you know what? what why, why would that be helpful to me, not them? Why would that be helpful to me? you're thinking of someone else. I'm getting out of my head. I'm getting out of my head. I might say something like, you know, I've been in my head all morning. I'm going to pull in Starbucks and I'm going to grin at that person behind the counter, <laughs> even if they don't grin back. I'm going to grin and I'm going to grin at somebody I don't know. And I'm going to grin at a clerk. Oh, now I'm, I'm getting out of my head. I'm getting out of my head. It, it's interesting. You know, that we, we get in trouble when we kind of get, we just get stuck and we're, we're, we feel like it's all closed in. It's interesting as this, this chapter closes. Are we done? Is, is, is time up? Eight minutes. Oh, eight minutes. Okay. Um, look at the last little section there in 19. Okay, just a second, David. Look at 19. Uh, and verse 15. Now, go, now, everybody find that if you would. 19 verse 15. Go ahead. The Lord said to him, this is after the Lord asked, what are you doing here, uh, uh, Elijah? The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. What? I want you to go back. 
I don't want you to anoint these kings. I want you to, excuse me, anoint Elisha as the prophet. Basically saying, I want you to go back and get to work. And he's basically telling Elijah, I am with you. I am present. Let's stand up and go back to it. Now, one of the things I want to encourage us to do as we wrap this up is just think about this story and think, how could this possibly be helpful to me? Uh, and I don't, I don't know. It could be that you tend to live in your head when you need to put some energy into thinking about how could I serve and bless, you know? Um, I'm more introverted than extroverted, okay? And, you know, I can be around people and say hello to everybody, but I'm exhausted after that's over. The extroverts in here, they get wired by that, um, or some do. Uh, but what I've noticed is because of the, that, I can very easily live in my head way too much instead of serving, whether it's those phone calls or serving someone by being a blessing at a Starbucks, you know, Charlie, or, or the restaurant. So maybe this week, just, just kind of be attentive to that. Just ask myself, ask yourself, what are my leanings here? What do, what do, what do I probably need to pay attention to? We've got one more uh, class in this series. It'll be next, I think. Is that right, Alan? One more? Okay. If he had said no, I would have said, okay.